Again, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 1, at the end of that chapter, and then we'll continue on through verse 10 of chapter 2. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord quickly and ask for his help with the text. Lord Jesus, we pray to you concerning your word, that you would guide us to it and through it. Uh, help us to not see these stories here in 1 Samuel as just a a story about good people doing good things that we should be like, but it's a story about you, our Redeemer, our King, our Messiah, the Anointed One of God, the one who came to save their, his people from their sins. And Lord, help us when it comes to your word. Help us to repent of those sins that we see in us through reading your word. And Lord, help us, lead us to ministry to see your kingdom grow in this community through the study of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I read this passage, it made me think of the idea of arrogance. And I remember the first time I was called arrogant. There's been many since, um, sometimes rightly. And this is when I was first began to realize there's a difference between the different students in my grade. I was in Seventh grade, I always had a, I never had a problem really doing schoolwork. Um, I knew that other students, students needed more help than I did, but I just assumed that we all struggled with different things. And I remember I had a hard time with long division, for instance, and like cried about it because I didn't get to watch a movie one time while everybody else got to watch it, and that was bad. So I figured other students like had their struggles, and we just kind of all had different struggles. Well, in seventh grade, I decided that. Um, I wasn't going to do the problems the math teacher was doing or the way that she was doing them because I thought it was really long and convoluted, and uh, I did it my own way. I was getting the problems right. It was taking a lot less time, and so I just finished it while she was showing the rest of the class how to do it. And I rose my hand, and I said, Miss So-and-so, I found a better way. Let me show the class how to do them. Twelve-year-old little boy. Well, apparently she wasn't interested in that, and she said with some bit of anger uh, um, that this is the way that I want you to do them. This is the way that I'm teaching you to do them. And, I, of course, I responded, well, my way is better. <laughs> and she called me arrogant, and I had to look it up. And I didn't believe her at the time, but, of course, now I realize that that was very arrogant of me to say. It hadn't occurred to me, though that what I did was wrong. Why? Well, because I really did have a quicker way. It really was better, in a sense. However, what I didn't understand is that not every student understood things the way that I did, and they needed a slower way, a different way to grow and develop their own skill, much like I did in the department in the department of when to keep my mouth shut and how to say nice things. I was very underdeveloped in that department. Uh, it's a fascinating idea, though, right, This uh, that we have all these different needs in life and that we are all at different stages. And think about the spiritual walk that we go through, how each one of us are at some different stages and different parts of that spiritual walk. And we have a Heavenly Father who knows all and does all perfectly, and takes care of us in the midst of that. So consider that. Yet sometimes 
we are still that dumb little seventh grader, like I was, that insists that our teacher is wrong. Why? Arrogance. We are so important that God should consult us before he decides how he's going to do his will. Isn't that essentially what our sin is? Just that he should consult us first. Of course, as silly as it sounds, this is how we operate lots of times in our lives. And so we think we can somehow instruct God. And so in today's passage, we have all the players from last week, Elkanah and Hannah, the rest of the gang, taking young Samuel to his destination at the temple. And Hannah sings this beautiful song about what she learned from this ordeal with the Lord and having Samuel and all this. Hannah has a lot to teach us concerning the work of the Lord and the lives of his people. And so as we look at this passage together, I want us to consider three main ideas. Hannah remembering her vow, Hannah remembering her place, and then Hannah singing of her Messiah. And so let's read this text together, standing as we do so. Verse, uh, 1 Samuel, starting at chapter 1, verse 21, and going through chapter 2, verses 10. Let's read. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. The child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord was for this for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he and he worshiped there, or and, and he worshiped the Lord there. And then starting chapter two. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts the Lord, my strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like your God, like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were, who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and, he, he makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. 
He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap and makes them to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has and on them he has set the world. He will guard his he will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. And so first, we'll look at this idea of how Hannah remembered her vow. So here, the family is headed back up to make their yearly sacrifice, and at this time, Elkanah wants to take Samuel to fulfill the vow. Elkanah is very familiar with the vow that was made, and he wants to take Samuel up to do that. Remember, Hannah prayed to the Lord to give her child, to give her a child because she was barren. And remember also, her husband's other wife, Peninnah, who was very fertile, but, and liked to provoke Hannah, make fun of her, give her a hard time. So Hannah was in the temple, and she prayed that the Lord would give her a child. Eli heard it and said that the Lord would grant her request. So Hannah wants to wait until and wait to wean Samuel before they offer him to the service of the Lord. And you'll notice that Elkanah reluctantly kind of accepts this. He's like... Well, you do what seems best, wait until you've weaned him, only may the word of the Lord be established. It's because God's word is important to him. And what does God's word say about vows? Well, in Numbers chapter 30, you don't have to turn there, it's a pretty long chapter about what the Lord says about vows. I do encourage you to read that on your own time, but what it does is it details how Vows are considered very important, one, and how the Lord will hold that person uh, sinful if they choose not to to complete their vow. And particularly, it's, it has to do a lot with how women make vows. Well, women were either under the authority of their father before they were married and then under the authority of their husband after they were married. And so Hannah, having, making, having made this vow under... Elkanah's roof, Elkanah felt this very strong responsibility to see to see that she carried through with her vow. And so what is he doing here? He's not getting mean with her or anything. He's actually affirming her vow and affirming her need to fulfill it because it's a grievous thing to not fulfill a vow made to the Lord. And so eventually they do bring Samuel up, their yearly trek to the, uh, to the lands of Shiloh. And they, uh, they go up and they make their, their sacrifice and they bring Samuel with them. Uh, weaning, this idea of weaning, it could have been as much as three years in that culture. That's what I've read. And so they may have been bringing a baby, but they also may have been bringing a little, like a little boy that was able to kind of walk around or whatnot. Uh, that's not that important. But it is important. They brought their sacrifice. They brought a bull. They says they slaughtered the bull there. They brought their flour. They brought the wineskin. And they made this sacrifice 
and they brought their child to Eli. And what does Hannah say? Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. And so she reminded Eli, this is, remember me, I was the one who was there praying, and here's the child that you said the Lord would, would grant us. And then what she says next is kind of an odd Hebrew uh, sentence. The English translation here, I guess, makes sense to us in English, but it really doesn't make sense. The English really doesn't make a lot of sense of the Hebrew, if you kind of understand what I'm saying. And so there's a different way for us to look at it, particularly when we look at verses 28. What does it say? Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Well, what do we think of when we hear that? Well, I'm lending him away to the Lord, and at some point the Lord's going to give him back to me because it's just a borrowing type of relationship. I'm going to allow the Lord to borrow my son so that I can have him back. Well, that's not what's going on here. And so this that particular sense of the word lent is not how we should think about this. And so... Essentially, the way that you can read this is, look at, looking at verse 27, this word for, you know, she says, granted me my petition that I made to him. Granted me my petition and made are actually the same verb there. And so it actually sounds weird if you read it in English, but we can kind of read it this way. For the child I prayed, that, and for, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my asking that I asked to him. And therefore, therefore, he says, he has given me back what was asked. He is the one that I asked for. And so essentially, what is she saying? He has given back, or I have given back what I asked for. What's the point? Is she letting the Lord borrow Samuel? No. She is affirming the fact that the things that we offer to the Lord... The things that we give to the Lord, we are only able to give to him because he first gave them to us. And so Samuel, her offering to the Lord, is only able to be an offering to him because he was first given to her. I mean, it's kind of like the time when you were little and your parents gave you some money and said, here, we're at the store, go find me a Christmas gift. What was the point of that? I always thought, that's so silly, that mom's given me $5 to go buy her something for Christmas. Why is she doing that? Well, she she doesn't, would it, would it be a good gift for me to give her a $5 bill? No, she doesn't need that. It's the concept of me finding something that's for her, a gift for her, and picking it out and purchasing it for her. All right. The purpose is so that I could show my love and affection towards my parents. Even though I didn't have the means on my own to do so without their help. And I think it's important for us as we consider the gifts that we have been given. What the Lord has given to us and then what we in turn give back to him. And this isn't necessarily always a material possession though. For some of us it is. That the, the Lord has blessed us in, in that way and we give that back to him. That's a really good thing. But think about the gifts that we've all been given. And, well, all of us adults in here, 
We've all been given the gift of marriage. We've all been given the gift of children. Those gifts are where? From where? Directly from the Lord. How do we offer them back to the Lord? By doing what he says concerning them. By serving the Lord together in marriage. What are we doing? We're giving that great thing that he's given us back to him. The husband loving his wife like Christ loved the church. The wife submitting to and respecting her husband. This is how we give that back which he's given to us as an offering. Our children, how do we give that back to the Lord? Should we take them to the temple? And No, that's not what he's asking here. We grow them up in the Lord. We teach them the gospel, how to love God, how to love other people. This is what we give back to the Lord. This is what we give back to his service. Consider our other gifts that we've been given. Using them to serve the Lord. Using them to give back in his service. That doesn't mean that we should all work for the church. That's not what that means. What does it mean to serve the Lord? Taking the gifts that we have, whatever that is, all of us here have different gifts and we're all using them in different ways outside of the church, but there's a, there's a sense in which we can do everything that we do for the glory of God. All that we do. When I'm teaching biology at Murray High School, I want to do a good job at it. Why do I want to do a good job at it? For the glory of the Lord. So that when people see me, they say, wow, he actually cares about his work. That's important to me to do that. Not just the fact that I tell the kids at school about Jesus when they ask about him. That's a great way to serve the Lord too. But the fact that I'm doing my job well is a service to the Lord. That would go for any of us, whatever we're doing. It affects the way that we view the world when we see our job as a service to the Lord. It affects that we've, the way that we view the people in it and the way the people in it view us. And so that's an important thing for us to consider. And next, Hannah remembers her place. So starting there in chapter 2, Hannah prays this prayer, and we have it recorded here in this book. It may have been private or public. We don't know. Um, but whatever it is, it's recorded for us, and it's an important prayer. It's one that I think is echoed there in Psalm 113 that we, that we looked at this morning as well. And in her prayer, you can hear her pouring her heart out concerning this whole ordeal with, with Peninnah and Elkanah and with her son, Samuel. And she begins by acknowledging the sovereignty of the Lord. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength, or my horn, is the literal translation of, there, of that word there, is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Again, this concept of the horn, the power, that she is saying that this, the power that she has, what is the power that she has? What is she exalting the Lord for? The fact that she now has a son. This is something that was given to her by her Lord. And then continues on. Consider what she's been through. Considering, consider her interaction with Peninnah, the uh, provoking second wife. Look at verse 3 through 5. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance 
come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bow of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The barren has borne seven. Interesting, Hannah ends up having six children, but she who has many is forlorn. Do not talk so proudly. Why? Because God is a God of knowledge. He knows all things. Not just what he sees, but he knows all things in that every action of every person has been weighed by him beforehand. You claim importance because of your own ability, yet the Lord is the one who has decided every action before it takes place. So how does this idea continue? Again, the whole idea that there is a sense in which the strong trust in their own merit, but they'll be found wanting. The weak trust in the Lord, and he raises them up. He gives them strength. True merit is found in the Lord alone. Hannah realizes here, who is the great giver? Who is the one who gives all things? The Lord himself is the great giver. And her offering of her son is a picture of that. Here is my son that you gave to me. Do with him what you will. For Hannah, her strength is found in her weakness. Because her strength was from the Lord. And the Lord lifts up the humble. And he crushes the arrogant. Look at 6 through 8. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them to sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. This is the Lord's world. He decides what goes on, and anyone who decides that they are strong in and of themselves, he brings low, and he brings those weak up. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think we have a great pairing here in Paul's letter. 1 Corinthians, or maybe I'm in 2 Corinthians actually. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, sorry. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul begins talking about this vision. And he says, I must go on boasting, there in verse 1. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations. And he says, I know a man in Christ who was 14 years ago caught up to the third heaven. And he goes on talking about that. I know a man in Christ. Well, who was that man in Christ? He was. He was called up to heaven. And he saw things and he heard things that were untold. And he said, these things could have caused me to boast. 
could have caused me to brag and write a book like That Time I Saw Heaven, or whatever it was called when it got wrote. He could have wrote that book, right? It's been done before. Uh, but he didn't. And why didn't he? Well, the Lord helped him with that. Look at verse 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. So how was Paul made low after he was brought so high? He was given a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what this is. Like, literally, entire forests have been killed writing about it. Um, however, I wouldn't worry so much about what it is. The fact that he was given some sort of thorn that, that bothered him, that kept him, that, that made him low. And he pleaded with the Lord to take it from him. Three times, he says. But what did Paul discover through this? Through being given this thorn, he discovered, through, Jesus, through Jesus' direct words to him, that the grace of God was enough for him. Receiving an unmerited gift from the Lord was all that he needed. Nothing else. The grace of God. Why? Because the power of Christ is manifested in Paul's weaknesses. And consider how we were saved. We were delivered from death in sin to life in Christ, from weak to strong. It speaks of our life in Christ, our continued life in Christ. What do we find power in in the Christian walk? Humility and service rather than pride and arrogance. It speaks of our home with Jesus, where he is on the throne, not us. And we are his people, serving him for all eternity. I mean, look at verse, verses 3 and five, through 5 there. Again, talk no more so very proudly. The bows of the mighty are broken. Consider all of this that's going on. The Lord does not consider the strong. He considers those who consider themselves weak. And he considers the weak before those who are weak are even able to consider themselves. Even while I was dead in my trespasses, he brought me up. Look at verse 8 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. What does that sound like if it doesn't sound like our salvation? If it doesn't sound like our redemption? In Jesus Christ, what have we been made? 
we have been made to sit with princes. Why? No reason in ourselves, because we were dust and ashes without his intervention. Continue on in verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Why does he guard our feet? Why are we called the faithful ones? Because Jesus was the faithful one. So Paul, going back to Paul, therefore I will boast about what? Christ. I will boast about Christ. Moreover, I'm content with all of my weaknesses because when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. This is helpful in a world where we feel helpless most of the time, if you think about it. Not just with the happenings of the world, but even with the mundane things of our own lives. We think about the hardships that we have to go through just to have a marriage that glorifies the Lord. Just to raise children up in the Lord. Just to do well at our jobs. That's a real hardship to do those things and do them well. Look at the divorce rate. Look at the crazy kids that are out there. Look at people who don't want to do their jobs well. Look at these things. It's it's not easy to do these. It's not easy to live this life. It's the same among Christians. We struggle. What is the secret to a great marriage? Realize your inability to make it great outside of Christ. What is your secret to having kids that love the Lord? Trust in Christ and his power to save. What's the secret to success? Realize that the Lord is your ultimate wealth, glory, and power. We trust in him. He's the one that makes it right. He's the one that does it good. And lastly, Hannah sings the song of her Messiah. Look there at verse 10, 1 Samuel 2. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in the heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength or a horn to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Strength to his king. Exalt the power, exalt the horn of his anointed. Again, kings are not really a thing yet for the Hebrew folks. They still have judges in the land. Eli is one of those judges at this point. Eli was serving that role. Samuel would eventually serve that role. The last verse in the book of Judges tells us this. In those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So who is she talking about? We have another hint with this idea of the anointed. This is the first use of the Hebrew word Mashiach in Scripture, where we get our word for Messiah. Later in this book, we're going to see a young boy, David, anointed by Samuel as the future king of Israel. You think Hannah might be talking about that? Sure she is. She's talking about David. David would be a kind of savior, a kind of Messiah, for his people. They would experience prosperity. They would experience peace under him. But was David perfect? Was David able to absolutely deliver his people? No. However, there is one in whom the people of God would find ultimate prosperity, ultimate peace. Our Lord Jesus Christ, David's son, David's Lord, David's king. 
Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord's Messiah, the Anointed One of Israel. How do we know? How do we know He's the King of Kings? How do we know He's the Anointed One of Israel? Number one, Scripture tells us it's all we need. But how else do we know? We see the kingdom of God going forward. We see that which we just read in Hannah's prayer happening all over. And if it weren't so, would there be a king that was acting on its behalf? No. But because we have a king acting on its behalf, we see these things happening. We see the the poor being raised up from the dust. We see the needy being lifted up from the ash heap. Turn with me to Isaiah 61. It's been a few weeks since we've read this, and we're reading it again to remind you of what the Lord Jesus came to do. A central theme in Scripture, a central theme of how we should do ministry and how the Lord Jesus did ministry. Isaiah 61, the first three verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, upon me because the Lord has anointed me or made me Messiah to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all those who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be glorified. Isn't this exactly what we saw in Hannah's story? A beautiful headdress instead of the ashes, laughter instead of mourning. Do we still see this today? Look in the mirror. I hope that's what you see. Look around you, people that hopefully you are ministering to, that you are seeing being raised up, that you are seeing to be made well. The kingdom of God is coming and is here. People are being changed. The people of God are his agents for this change. God is working through his weak vessels, us, his people, to display his strength and his glory to see his kingdom come forward. Every time the things of Isaiah 61 happen, every time we see those things happen, what are we seeing happen? We're seeing the outreach of the king of kings go forward. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, the strength, the power of his anointed. And we, as the people of God, are in his service, our Lord working through us. And so in conclusion, quickly, how then should we live? We preach the good news to the captives, to the brokenhearted, to the barren to the outcast, to everyone who has ears, we preach the good news. We preach the good news with God's word, and then hopefully we are preaching the good news 
with what we do for folks as well, loving them as Christ loves us. We walk side by side and hand in hand with one another, and we lift up the poor and the weak. We feed the hungry. We clothe the naked. We heal the sick. We speak love, joy, and kindness to the ones who see only hatred, sorrow, and pain in this horrible world. We preach Jesus Christ, and we preach Him crucified. We preach Him and the hope of His resurrection. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, help us to do that. You are the hope of our salvation. We have no power. We have no strength in and of ourselves. But it's in our weakness that your strength is displayed. And so, Lord, help us to not be arrogant like the little dumb seventh grader that I was. But help us, Lord, to be taught by you, to learn from you, to learn from Hannah here in this text as she gave you glory and she lifted you up for what you had done for her. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.